If you have your Bibles, please open. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will make sure you have a Bible in your hand. We want you to have God's word in your hand as we go through his, uh, his word line by line and verse by verse. Allow me to be the first or second or fifth, I don't know, this morning uh, to welcome you to Calvary Chapel. We're glad you're here. My name is Pastor Matt Vanderven. Nice to meet you all, if it's the first time I'm meeting you. Uh, otherwise, um, just pray you're blessed this morning and uh, we'll bow our heads in prayer. I'll pray the Lord. Uh, I just get out of the way and we hear from Jesus Christ. How about that? Father God, we just thank you here this morning, Lord, that we can come. You've given us this warm building where we can gather together, Lord. Just simply in truth, we don't need fancy uh, digs, Lord. We don't need a rock concert. We need you, Jesus. That's all we want. We want your word. We want your spirit to fall upon us here this morning. And God, we just, uh, as I prayed earlier and you overheard, Lord, I pray I would just get out of the way. It would be your still small voice that speaks. You knit the hearts together, Lord, as you do perfectly, and that you would place that, that just precision, Lord, into the heart of what they need to hear this morning, God, your flock, your sheep, your, your beloved, Lord. So I just ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 8. Now, we've come to a pivotal place here as we're looking in the Bible. What's really interesting about Acts chapter 8, if you think about it, from the very beginning of Genesis to Acts chapter 8, there's something that fundamentally changes. And one of the things that changes throughout, really, this point up to this point of the gospel is what was the primary audience? Even from in the early beginning of Genesis, who was God primarily speaking to? Obviously, his creation is children, so I'm, I'm with you there. But who else? Predominantly, Israel, right? We understand Israel, his covenant people. That's why we're told in Genesis 12, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. So we understand that. But here we come to chapter 8, and we're going to see this spreading of the church. And, and we talked a, lot of, a little bit about it before. What's really interesting is every time we see persecution and affliction, what happens in the early church? It grows, and it multiplies, and it spreads through like wildfire. So is it wrong for a Christian to always think, boy, everything's just going to be super sweet. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Never going to have a problem again, right? Of course not. There's nothing wrong with you. If you're here this morning and you're going, man, I'm just beaten down. You know, I don't want to play church. I want to hear from Jesus. You know, Lord, just wreck my heart. Just show me who you are. You know, many of us come in. We're coming out of the world. We're, we're dealing with our jobs day in and day out. I, I, I'm here now. I'm sort of guarded because I'm around men of Christ and women of Christ all day. But a lot of you, you're going out into the mission field every day. You're going into your workplace your homes, your neighborhoods, and you're telling people about Jesus Christ. And often it's, it's difficult sometimes because hearts aren't prepared. Hearts aren't ready. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. It can even be discouraging sometimes. But I think what we read here this morning, and we're going to see really the second word in chapter 8 of verse 1, Saul. Now, many of us know us by, by his Roman name, Paul, right? An apostle. I mean, you think about him as what we know about him from as a Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees. This man was learned in all ways. He studied under Gamaliel, okay? All the head knowledge in the world, but there's your head and your heart, and there's 18 inches in between. And so we can have all the application. We can be the best studied student, if I can say it that way. I don't know if it's grammatically correct. I didn't do good in English in school. But I know, I know what the Bible teaches, you know what the Bible teaches, and that's a heart issue. And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see this man, Saul. We're going to be introduced to him, and we're going to see with this intense persecution, like the early church had never experienced before, this is the first time we're going to see intense persecution on the early church. Uh, you might be going, Pastor, but wait a minute. Uh, we read chapter 3 and 4. Who is that targeted primarily to? The apostles, leadership. But now we see this is disciples, this is, this is deacons, where it's where we get the word deacon, deaconess, right? Deaconos in the Greek. That's where we see it. It's right in this chapter. So we'll begin in verse one, and, and hopefully what, what this passage spoke to me this week was just, we don't have to play church. We don't have to play Christian. We don't have to pretend we have it all together. We need to be real. And we need to come in, and we need to be ready for God to change our hearts. And then we need to be about our Father's business. Amen? 
Now Saul was consenting, and if you're taking notes, that, that really, that word's a little light there, consenting. That's kind of like, well, I consent to it. No, what he did is he approved. That's the connotation in the Greek there. To his death. Now whose death? What happened? You remember last night we were talking about Stephen. He was an early deacon, one of the seven that were picked, right? He came out. We're going to learn about the rest of chapter 8. It's going to be about Philip, actually, as well. And in chapter 7, we came, or yeah, we met uh, Stephen there. He came out, and they stoned him because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as he's coming forward, what happened? They took the clothes off as they would. They would normally push him out the gate. We talked about it. It was a, fifth, it was a sheep gate, a 15-foot drop. As he would drop 15 feet, the idea was what? A little bit of punishment, a little bit of damage, but you'd still be alive. Maybe a broken back, broken legs, but you had time to repent. And so that's what they thought they were going to do to Stephen. You know, they're going to push him out, and that's what's going to happen. And then they see that didn't work. He turned around, and he looked up, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Not sitting and speaking of completeness, but standing and, and doing what? Reaching out, welcoming, because he knew he was coming home. Unless you're raptured, unless Jesus Christ comes right now and he raptures us before the end of this service, which I got no problem with and neither do you. But unless he does that, each one of us is going to face death. And we just got to be real. And see, when you die, you're going to see one of two things. You're either going to see the hand of Jesus Christ reached out, walking you the rest of the way home, or you're going to see a darkness that you've never even begun to experience. And no matter how depressed, no matter how bad things have gotten, it's nothing compared to what hell would be like. It's, just not, it's not even just the termin or the gnashing of teeth, as Jesus said. It's the revelation of knowing who Jesus Christ is. He is God, and you're eternally separated from him. That's the revelation of hell. And so here we see this Saul, as, as I mentioned, in the, as we were talking about in the count, they laid their robes at Saul's feet. See, Saul's watching this. These men took the stones and they cast it and they, did, they, they killed Stephen. They murdered Stephen because they thought he was blaspheming. And so now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution, right, arose against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now, immediately, I, I don't know about you, but sort of red flags are going off in my mind right now. Wait a minute, what did Jesus Christ say to do? Matthew 28, 19. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We'll come right back here. What did Christ tell us to do? It was the Great Commission. 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Go, therefore, go, a verb, an action, go, all nations, that's where they were to go. I got to ask you a question, where are they at this point? Jerusalem, had they gone to Judea? Had they gone to Samaria? Had they gone to all nations as they were, as they were told to do? They were told to stay there for the coming or the promise of the Father, which is the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? But what happened? They got comfortable. They started seeing the works of the early church. We saw Peter and John, the lame man that was healed. People were coming up. They were getting saved. It was beautiful. 13,000 people, when you really add up the numbers, between men, women, children, 13,000 people got saved. They came to Jesus Christ. And, I, and I'm sure as they were standing there going, we can't leave this multitude to go after the one. Because there's this man that we're going to read about in the rest of chapter 8, that, that Philip is actually going to be obedient and he's going to be sent to this, this eunuch. And this eunuch's just going to happen to have a Bible in his hand as he's riding in a chariot, just coincidental. I know we, we you know, it, it can't be God ordained this. <laughs> I'm, I'm being funny. You see, God prepares the way. He just wants us to be available and to walk in it. We need to step by faith not by understanding. We need to walk by promise. And that's what he was trying to say here. And that's why God's going to work his will out. Whether we say, okay, you know, Isaiah chapter 6, Lord, here I am, use me. Whether we stand up or not, God's will will be done. And nothing's going to change that. So 
They scattered throughout the regions, and this idea of scattering, there's two real Greek words in the Greek language that can be used for scattering. One is the idea of ashes. If I took ashes and I sort of just randomly scattered and they sort of disappeared and they dissipate. That's, that's one of the ways you can use the word scatter in the Greek. What, what's the other one? The other one is, is actually very deliberate, right? It talks about, and it's sort of used in the connotation of a seed. If you took a seed and you were intentional about scattering it, you were planting it in the ground, that what? It would eventually produce fruit. It would grow. Something would come out of it. This is the meaning here, right? This is not, this is not just a talking about a, a, spreading, a spreading of seeds, kind of like you know, you're scattering it that way. But God had a very definite plan for distribution of his word. And it was to go forth to all nations to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. So it says that they were, spat, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed back, the, the Jerusalem church, as they stay back. We know that two of their delegates will be sent out once they see what Philip's doing in Samaria. They're going to come out and just be wrecked by it, going, man. Because I bet in their minds, you know, they're probably going, we got all these disciples here. We got all, look what the Lord's doing. He's building these big church. You know, look at all this great stuff. Are we going to leave all this to go out for that one soul? You know, friends of ours from Rochester, New York, I, I maybe have shared this account before. They went to Africa, and they went over there with the idea that they were going to help those that were in Africa to learn how to uh, plant and, and to do those things so that they could be self-sufficient that way. And they traveled all the way over there, and they got there, and they were there for almost a year, and they did Bible studies with the people, and they were sharing the gospel but it really wasn't, I don't know if I could say it wasn't what they envisioned because I don't know that they had a vision. They knew the Lord was sending them and they were going to be faithful to go. Well, as they got over there, they began working and different things like that, helping to cultivate with the crops and everything and teaching them and doing all that. Well, as they're there, what happens is this one man comes up and, you know, Tyler, the gentleman over there, he begins sort of befriending him and sharing the gospel he starts to believe. They end up meeting almost every morning by this tree. This one tree, they kind of say, okay, we're going to meet at the tree. I couldn't tell you what the tree was or where it was, but they're meeting at this tree. And Tyler would just simply open the Bible. He'd go line by line, verse by verse. Now, this is good your first month, right? Your first month, you're like, all right, ministry. I'm doing something for the Lord. But month two, three, and four, you're looking around and you're going, but where? Where's everybody else? I expected this thing to just keep growing and growing and growing and, and, and we're going to have a church. We're going to have a Calvary Chapel in Africa. This is going to be awesome. But this one faithful man kept coming over and over again and he sat there and he just read the word of God and just was being taught as, as Tyler would exegete the scripture. He'd go through it and, you know, he, they came back to the States, actually came back to California. That's where they're living now and I remember asking him when I saw him, I said, you know, Ty, was it worth it? And I knew the answer to that already, but I wanted to hear it from him because the testimony of Jesus Christ, the glory to his name. And he said, if it was just one soul, I would have gone. I would have given up my life, surrendered all, sold the house, did everything if it was just one soul. You know, when Lisa and I were praying about coming down here, we knew no one down here. Many of you know that. We knew Dave and Jen, but they at the time were living up more like, you know, past Carl up that area. And, and I said, God, I don't know what you're doing. But Tyler came to my mind, if it was just one soul, wouldn't it be worth it all? So never underestimate what God's doing. It could be one soul. And you could be thinking, but Lord, I thought it was going to be this. You're sending me to this place, this career, this... And you're, what, are you, what are you doing at this job? This job doesn't feel right. Why, I'm struggling every day. I, I, I don't find any joy. Why am I here? You know, I know you're not in the land of ice and snow where I came from, but Harrisburg's not California either, right? You're not like 80 degree all the time. You know, I, my first year, I remember moving here. Oh, it doesn't really snow. 31 inches. I had sold the snowblower. I got rid of the shovel. I'm looking around at the boys going, what do we do now? Or should I say, what do you do now? You know, and they're laughing, you know, and I'm going, oh, I'm not joking. You know, and we're out driving in, you know, two foot of snow trying to just get a shovel, right? Off-roading. So I, the point is, isn't it worth it? You don't know, but you step in faith. And if God shows you something, you've got to be obedient. When he says go, go. Because if not, he has no problem in creating a little Christian trouble 
little tension. Everything's going well, you're comfortable. My wife will laugh and tease you. You know, one of the things in, in Honeyway Falls where we live, I said, you know, Lee, I'm just peaced out. I am so blessed. We are so comfortable in our home right now. We, we're serving in our church. We're doing all these things. We're in ministry up there. Life is great. You know, if nothing else changed, I'd be blessed. She looked at me, and she's like, what did you just say? And I said, what? I just said we're comfortable. She's like, every time you say that, she's like that contentment, that contentment statement. She's like, the Lord sends you. Next thing you know, we're flying somewhere. We're going somewhere. We're sorry. I said, Amen. That's being faithful, right? He's do, you know. So sometimes we, we can find ourselves in these environments and why are we doing this? What's going on? And, and maybe you just haven't been introduced to that one soul. You know, our young Maddie here, just recently, you know, she went to Philadelphia and she had a short stay. And as she was in the hospital, you know, our, the family, all of us were praying, what's going on there, right? What, what can we do? There was one soul in that hospital happened to be put right in her room. And as we wrote cards and people sent cards, this girl took notice. And she began saying, what's that about? And, you know, asking Maddie, and what did Maddie turn around and do? She had her Bible. She's reading her Bible. The girl says, can I get a Bible? I mean... She could ask for anything, right? She's not, what can I have? Can I have a Bible? She gets a Bible. Before Maddie leaves, can you tell me more about Jesus? She gives her life to Christ. 16, 17 year old girl. And I've asked Maddie, was it worth it all? And she says unequivocally, yes. Do you see how God can do that through any one of us? He can do that through a child, a young adult, he can meet you where you are if you're willing to be available. And so, as we move on here, verse two, it says, and devout men carried Stephen in his burial and made great lamentations over him. I'm so glad God put this verse in this passage here because it shows us that not all the men were wicked and, and agreeing to Stephen's death, that there were good men that were devout, that, that understood what God was doing and how he was moving. And then we come to verse three and it says, as for Saul, again, his Roman name, Paul, he made havoc. That word in the Greek there is used typically to imply destruction. So when we think of havoc, we might say, oh, you know, kids are getting their wiggles out. It's messy around the house. Maybe that's just our house, but you know, I'm sure it's your house. Kids are all over the place. Things are everywhere. That's havoc. No, that's not, what, that's not what the Holy Spirit's telling us here. This is destruction, complete destruction. He says, as for Saul, he made destruction of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, some decades later, Paul, again using his Roman name, he never really got over this. I mean, he repented, obviously, from the sin, but it was something that I, I believe he, he later continued to think about. He, he might even have, you might say, struggled. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Let's look at verse 11. We're already in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, look at verse 11. You see, Saul remembers when he became Paul, he remembers what the things he did. And it's not that, it, you know, there's no condemnation in Romans. We know there's no condemnation for those under Christ Jesus. We walk by grace. So let me just first say that. If you walked in here this morning and you got something and it's, it's in your past, it's, it's sin, it's forgiven, man. Lay it down. Don't, don't lay a trip for yourself. That's not God's design. God's will is that we're freed. We're not slaves. We're not in bondage. Like we talked about when we were in Exodus last week. Just as he was working with those you know, Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, he was setting them free. And that's what he did for you and I on the cross. His shed blood, the new covenant, so that sinners could be set free and forgiven. Past, present, and future. Ongoing. So as we read here in verse 11, it says, and I punish, speaking of, of Paul, remembering the old man, Saul. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. What's that talking about? 
We just read he went in every house. He would see people. Who knows what he did? He might have taken one of the kids and put a knife to the kid's throat and said, hey, deny Jesus Christ. If not, your son, your daughter, maybe a family member. This is real. In America, we have got it so blessed at this point. You go to other countries, Lo, you read the voice of the martyrs, you see what's happening today. Men, women, children dying for the namesake of Jesus Christ. We don't play Christian. We don't play church. So it says he compelled them to blaspheme, denying Christ. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them in every foreign city. You think about that for a minute to have that as a charge on your account, to know that you caused people. And, and obviously, if he compelled them, we know from the English language, we even know from the Greek, it means that some did. They were compelled. Some did deny Christ. And he knows he was influential or part of that. And while he was forgiven, he, I imagine he thought of every one of those souls that denied Christ. And I imagine he prayed for them and he would never let it go because he knew he wanted to see them in heaven. Look, we've all done stupid things. Nobody here's arrived. Let's just, I say it all the time. Nobody here's arrived. We don't, we don't pretend. There's nobody here better than anybody else. There's no sin that's less of a sin than anybody else's. Everyone here today, we have sin. But we have a savior, don't we? We're forgiven. And so that's the first scripture. And then I'd, I'd say, well, let's just to get a better handle on it, let's also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. This is why I tell you, I don't think he ever really let it go. I, think, I know he knew he was forgiven, and he processed that. I mean, after all, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Romans, justification by faith, obviously Corinthians to the church of Corinth. He got it here, I'm sure he allowed it to, to penetrate here, but I can imagine this is something that he thought about and prayed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 tells us, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul thought about it. He thought about what he did when he was Saul, Tarsus. Friend, God wants you to lay it down. We don't need to be carrying it like a rucksack on our back and we're hiking up a mountain with 70 pounds. It's time, wherever we are, to set that pack down at the feet of Christ and walk away forgiven. All things are made new. That's what he tells us. He's not laying a trip on us. He's not telling us that we're not to be obedient either. He's not saying, well, you're covered by all this grace. Do whatever you want. That's not what he says. Again, it's always used in the term of salvation when we think of grace. Grace is not used in sanctification, the idea of, of growing in faith and walking out the Christian walk as disciples. You show me one passage in Scripture that talks about grace in that context. It doesn't. It speaks about it in context of salvation. Grace in salvation. So he dragged these men, and it says women here, committing them to prison. Therefore, those that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So here we see one of the largest persecutions at that time against the early church. And what's the response? They ran home with their, their tails between their legs and said, forget this Christian thing. It's too difficult. Right? Maybe, maybe it's not real. Maybe this is a figment of my imagination. No. What do we see? What do, how do they respond? You're going to run away from Christ or you're going to run to Christ. Everyone's got to make a choice. When it gets difficult, you're going to run in one direction. Which direction are you going to run? Well, they ran to Christ because it says when they were scattered, and by the way, it says everywhere, and Jesus told them to go everywhere. 
So God's will be done. Amen. Maybe not the way they wanted it done, but God's will be done. And they preached the word. That's, that's the end result here. That's what we see. Now, what's interesting is we look here and we continue reading. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, it says it's so just general and natural here. But in the context of that day, remember back 2,000 years ago with me. The Samaritans were enemies with Israel and Israel with the Samaritans, the Jews. They considered the Samaritans half-breeds, right? The, the Samaritans had come from that land that were really Ephraim and half of the tribe of Manasseh. That was the area where they were in 722. And when Assyria came in, because the northern tribes were disobedient, remember that? They came in and they had the Assyrian invasion. And what did they do? The king of Assyria was smart. He said, you know how we conquer our enemy? We don't just conquer our enemy by killing every one of them, but what we do is if we call them and we, we encourage them to intermarry with us, they'll become pluralized. Pluralized. We see that in the church today, as a matter of fact. This pluralism, this idea of there's multiple ways to heaven and kumbaya, and we all want to get along. And because we all want to get along, different doctrines, different teachings are all being presented multiple ways to Christ. You know, the Dalai Lama, good guy, the whole thing, right? You know, Buddhism, Hindu, all this different stuff. Well, I'm sorry, it's mutually exclusive. The Bible teaches that there's one way and it's the narrow way. And it's simple logic. It's mutually exclusive. It cannot be multiple ways. Either two things happen, and I'm not in any way implying that God is actually this way, but I will tell you just logically, from an apologetics perspective, there's only two ways this can play out. Either God is a madman, which I would never blaspheme the name of God. Either he's a madman, and he's going off and whispering to everyone's ear there's a different way, and oh, by the way, this makes sense, and follow your path that would lead to this enlightenment. But we know his son, Jesus Christ, said, the Father's in me and I in the Father. And Jesus Christ said, there's no way but to the Father, but through me. So that can't be rational. That can't be logical. So then play it to the nth degree, you know, from a logic perspective, and where do you end up? That there's one way that leads to eternal salvation, to eternity. And that's through the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, often if we just, we just take it logically and we follow it to the nth degree, we'll arrive at that natural conclusion. Now, that doesn't mean you receive it because we know there's many that don't believe but understand exactly who Jesus Christ is. That's a willful disobedience. That's humanism, making themselves a God, elevating themselves above the sanctity of God. But that shouldn't be a shock to us. In Isaiah chapter 14, the devil, who was a creation of God's, an angel, not an equal to, he was a creation, tried to do the same thing, didn't he? And not only through demon possession, but just through whispering in the inner ear, he's very content to try to convince unbelievers today there are multiple ways. I will be like the God most high. That's why the Bible tells us to take every thought captive in the name of Jesus Christ and cast it out, if it not be from him. You with me? You tracking with me? It's deliberate, it's spiritual warfare. You don't take a soldier and send him out without first preparing him. The armor of God in Ephesians 6 is the armor we were given. What's our weapon, if you wanna call it that? It is, but what is our weapon? It's the sword of the spirit. What's the sword of the spirit? The Bible. What's our defense? Well, he gave us many other weapons. The belt of truth, right? Breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, to not be looking at the temporal, but to look at the eternal. God's already ascertained the victory. We need to walk in it. Even in spite of the persecution, in spite of the affliction, and so as we see Philip, and this is, this is what we see happen, he went down to the city of Samaria, and as I was mentioning, there's these half-breeds, if they would have called them then, and they, they were sitting there and they were looking, and, and normally they wouldn't even walk through that. You might remember the, um, Jesus talks about, well, not only the woman at the well that he met, and then the disciples later went. What did Jesus do there, actually? 
He planted seeds, didn't he? Because Philip's coming back to Samaria, isn't he? And what's he going to do? He's going to water those seeds that were planted and many are going to come to salvation. I ask you again, would you go for one soul? Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's at your workplace. Every soul matters. And don't just assume, well, you know, I went up to them and I gave them the gospel in love and the fullness of compassion and truth, but there was no response there. They hardened their heart, maybe. It, I, Jesus didn't respond that way, did he? He went to Samaria, Samaria to what? To give the truth. And Philip follows along, not too many years later, and he sees this groundswell of those that come to Christ. You know, if we could just see the movie that way, instead of the clips, we get the clips of the movie, and we, how is this all going to work? It doesn't make sense. But if we could see it as Christ sees it, as God sees it, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. And so he goes to this area of Samaria. We don't read that he doesn't kick his shoes, kind of going, you know, we don't see a Jonah here, V2, right? This isn't Jonah V2 where he's kind of kicking his shoes, going, oh, man, I got to go see them, right? Which is interesting because where was Jonah going? To what people? Nineveh. And who were the Ninevites? Assyrians. Isn't that interesting? But we don't see Philip kicking against the pricks or the goads, do we? No. He turns around and he goes down to the city of Samaria and he preaches Christ to them. He foretells them this is what's going to happen. And again, you know, I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Isn't that the parable of the Good Samaritan? Just to give you the light of what they thought about the people from Samaria, so little they thought of them. You know that a priest would walk by on one side and pay no attention Right, a Levite would walk by, switch sides of the street, pay no attention. But it was a Samaritan that walked by and stopped and you know, helped that person, brought that person to an inn where they could be provided food and clothing. And Jesus tried to tell us that's what it means. Do you remember why that question was asked? Because a lawyer, a scribe, came and said, well, Jesus, what is it? And he says, Jesus, what, what do you think it is? He says, well, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor. So the lawyer turns around and goes, what's it mean to love your neighbor? Begging the question, right? And Jesus uses that parable to say that's what it means. All in, others focused. It's not halfway. I don't know about you, that encourages me. That's real, that encourages me when I see that kind of love. And then I, then I begin to understand when Jesus Christ said, lay your life down. We sang this morning, I surrender all. Now we understand. That's exactly what he expects from his disciples. Our jobs are tent making. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our life. Not, not just the pastor, not just the elders, or the under shepherd. All of us to bring great glory and honor to his holy name. We have such a limited time to do it. Life goes by so quick. Remember when you were 20? Oh, even 15, I got the rest of my life, this, that, and the other thing. You get your 40s and 50s, how fast is it going? You get to your 60s and 70s, it's a blink of an eye. It's a blink of an eye. It's such a short time to be about our father's business. But Philip's after it. He goes down and he preaches Christ and the multitudes with one accord, what happens there? We see unity, right? They heeded the things spoken by Philip. Was this the first time? I'd already mentioned this. Was this the first time they heard the gospel? No. Who was the first one that shared the gospel? Jesus. So does that mean that Harrisburg, while well, there's some darkness here, does that mean that we don't go out even though last year or two years or five years ago other people have gone out? No. Because you never know when that seed's going to take and blossom fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, as we're told. We just don't know. We walk in faith. So this is the thing spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing miracles, which they did. So, so not only do we see a true unity, but then we see the works come after the unity. It's not like he went down there and did, you know, some tricks like that, and then they're like, oh, we're going to believe. There was already a guy, Simon, there that had already been after that. 
There was already a guy, Simon, there already doing that, the tricks and everything, and they had bought into that. What they saw with Philip was different. They saw a servant king in Jesus. They saw a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. As a matter of fact, Philip is gonna find that, that this man he meets in the eunuch on this road, that's the exact passage he's in. You wanna talk about a layup from an evangelistic perspective? I mean, like he could have been, first of all, we know in almost every passage of the Bible, we can see Jesus Christ, right? Amen? But you wanna talk about like, you know, how many times you go up to somebody, I'm not really sure what to say, and he's opened up to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And it's like, well, thank you, Lord. I don't, I mean, you just put, you'll put that on the platter. Let's, let's, you know, let's exegete that and go line by line, right? And how can you not but see Jesus Christ? It's amazing. So they turn around and uh, it says, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out and many who were possessed, right? And many who were paralyzed and the lame were healed. We see this great work. And what's their response? And there was great joy in that city. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. Amidst our troubles, what, we ought to ha- what should we have? Great joy. Great joy. It doesn't come from us. It comes from serving him. It comes from serving him. Again, from people that most people would have said, well, I, I can't relate to them. They're, they're a different race. They would actually have called them that. The Hebrews would have called the Samaritans a different race. Well, I can't go to them. I can't go to this gives a whole new idea to the idea of diversity, right? Normally when you hear that word diversity, it makes me nervous because generally it inc- it's all about division. People use that word, well, we're, we're kumbaya. Get to the root of how they begin to do it, right? We need to have diversity when it comes to sexual preference. We're gonna make a law on it. So now we have to have gender exclusion on bathrooms. We have to have things, well, wait a minute. Did we draw people together or did we further delineate that? Did we further divide and spread them apart? We divided, didn't we? It's interesting, you go back and you look. Think about all the times and places where they begin to talk about diversity. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the true idea of us coming together in unity, but unity is different than diversity. Unity is coming together and we're like-minded like-minded in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where you're from because all of us, guess what? We all got off the same boat. And what boat was that? The ark, Noah. There was only three, right? The boys, the boys and their wives. They got off the boat, mom and dad, Noah and Mrs. Noah, right? And it was the boys and they got off and God said, have babies and do what you do. Repopulate the whole world, right? And that's what they did. So I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I, but I can trace it back to then and go, hey, guess what? Look to your left right now. Go ahead, look to your left. Look to your right. Your cousins, baby, your cousins. That's what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. Wait a minute, some people look different from us. Yeah, absolutely. But does that make them different? Or is that just a pigment thing? Is that just maybe you live down in a tropical climate, you're, you know, your pigment in your skin's different. But what does that have to do? We're united in Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters. It's beautiful. And that's what I mean when I say diversity tries to draw attention to individuality that we're, whereas unity draws it together and says we're one in Christ. And that's what we see when the word of God is preached. People come together. They don't divide there's a multitude that come together here in Samaria and we see great joy because they're not fighting over who's different and what this, that, and the other. That nonsense is put aside. And they begin to focus on what's important, Jesus. Jesus Christ, he's the thing that unites us all because every single person alive today is a creation of God, amen? Amen. The Bible testifies their creation of God. Children of God are those that receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Verse nine, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. 
that, that's helpful, boasting of oneself that way. This man, obviously, was, it says sorcery there, so he's involved in some type of occult practices, whatever he's doing. You know, I don't know. Um, some, you know, you can read a lot of commentaries on this. Sam say he's very much, tradition states he was involved in the cult. I don't know. I mean, I think it would be something as simple as magician. You know, maybe he was just a magician, sleight of hand did something that they looked at and they were impressed with. I, I don't know, and I think the scriptures are sort of silent on that. The point is, is that obviously he had practiced something that, that in some way these people began to be drawn to him because they thought he was someone great. As a matter of fact, verse 10 says, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the great power of God. Not this man has, but this man is the great power of God. That, I don't know about you, but an alarm goes off in my spirit when I hear that. When any man begins drawing, himself, drawing people into himself that way, as though he's great or superior in some way, run. If you ever see that in a church, run. If you ever see it in this church, run. I mean it. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of this church. There's no one that ought to be drawn to anybody but Jesus Christ. No Christian leader, you know, you look at the TV today and all these evangelists on the TV, they're, you know, send in your million dollars, you know, God needs you. My God's not slack, I got a big God. My God's not struggling financially. My God can create pretty much anything he wants anytime he wants. We don't need to beg for money or we don't need to turn around and do that. What we need to do is teach the word of God, how about that? How about setting people free and trusting that when God guides, he provides? How about that? You know, that's what we see in the early church. That's what they did, the book of Acts. We don't see them running campaigns. You see any campaign in here? I don't see a little thermometer up here. We're raising $300,000 this week. I, we laugh because it's really happening in churches today. They're doing it in churches. And you wonder how many people are getting wrecked because of that. When all they did is come in to hear about Jesus and learn about Jesus. You can tell it's a little sensitive spot, huh? A little bit. Verse 11. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with sorceries from a long time or for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached, do you see that? They believed because he was preaching God's truth. He didn't do any type of act or any type of uh, tricks, trickery or anything like that with signs and wonders yet. He will do those things. But he doesn't initially do that to try to draw the people the way this Simon did. He simply opened the Bible and began to teach and as people heard the word of God, their hearts were touched. God sort of tilled up the soil like that. So as he preached these things concerning the kingdom of God, what are they gonna do? They're gonna believe, right? But verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. This looks sincere, doesn't it? It's sincere. We see men coming to Christ, women coming to Christ, and they want to get baptized. That's what they want to do. It's, it's a believer's baptism. It, it, for all rights of account, we would all, I think, here agree, this appears sincere. Nothing out of the ordinary, no trickery or anything like that. I'm going to bring that up because Simon is going to be one of those individuals. And we're going to have to talk about that in a little bit. So we read on that that they did what? Concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then, verse 13, Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, so he became a disciple of Philip that way, and was amazed seeing, now he sees, after he's with Philip, he believes because he hears the truth of the word of God. But then he sees miracles and signs. It shouldn't be the other way around. We shouldn't see necessary miracle and science without the teaching of the word. The word, Jesus Christ himself, when he came, it was the teaching of the word. He gave the teaching like that, preaching of the word. And by the way, healings, you know, demon-possessed people being set free, exorcism, all that happened. But it was always begun with the teaching of the word, right? And they were made seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So, you know, obviously here, the question comes up, was this genuine for Philip? Well, as we read on, you'll know why I'm asking that question. Is this general? So verse 14 says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent two delegates, Peter and John, right, down to them, whom when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
For verse 16 tells us, for as they had, for as yet he, who's he? The Holy Spirit, it's, it's a pronoun. He's a person, he's a third person of the Trinity. He's not deutimus, he gives deutimus when he comes epe in the Greek, upon you. But he's a person, right? We, we, that's why we we're told in Acts chapter two, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He comes upon us, right? That we would do works in his name for his glory. Deutimus, again, power on high. So it says, for as he yet had fallen upon none of them, well, that's interesting, because people ask all the time, can you be saved and not have the gifts or the works of the Holy Spirit? We have our answer right here, don't we? It can happen. It's a separate baptism. It's called the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, we need to, Scripture interprets Scripture. It's our best commentary. And it says, for as yet he had fallen upon them, all of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We see the believer's baptism done. We don't see the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet, right? So what are they going to do? They're going to turn around and look at him, and, and they're going to lay hands, and they're going to pray over him that they would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because we can do nothing good of our own without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the resources we need. Discernment, you know, all the, we talked about all the gifts, all the gifts that the Lord gives us for what? For us? So we can bet on the ponies? No. What's he do it for? For his glory, to be others focused. Then they laid hands on them, and I will also say in scripture, we see it done different ways. It's not the only way. There are people that can just receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit by sitting in their chairs. They're praying for that gift. They ask the Father, Lord, will you just baptize me today? Will you fill me or fill me anew with the gifting, the workings of the Holy Spirit, that I might have these gifts to serve you? So there's, there's many ways. I, I don't want us to get a model around this because that's not what the early church did. And they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the laying of hands on, of the apostles and you know, the hands the Holy Spirit was given so what's Simon do? Simon, 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 what's he do? Look, I got some money here. I swindled from these folks earlier on. How do I get me that gift there? Right? That's what he's saying. How do I get it? I want it for myself. There's a term, and I don't know, you know, it's taught in seminary, and, you know, that's why I heard the term the first time. Simony. Has anybody else ever heard that term, Simony? That term simony is used to do what? It, it, it actually goes back to the Middle Ages. If you go back to history, history and you look at what they would do, we don't see that that often anymore, maybe, some places, um, where they would sell church offices. So they'd put church offices up on the block in the market and simony, and you could turn around and you could bid for a church office. And if you got the money and you won the bid, you actually were put in the church office. That's why, as I said earlier, we don't worship any leader in the church. We worship Jesus Christ because any man, any man can easily find himself. I never ever say, Lord, I would never do that. I say, God, keep me from that. Protect me and keep me from that, Lord. So he offers this money and, you know, obviously we don't even see Philip's response here. But he's a disciple of Philip. Philip's there. Philip baptized him. So obviously Philip baptized him. He believed what? It was a real or genuine conversion, right? I don't believe Philip would have baptized this guy if he was like, nah, I'm not sure, right? I mean, we, you don't do that. As an under-shepherd, as a pastor, I'm not going to baptize anybody unless I know they make a true confession of faith. You with me? I mean, so I, I really believe, Philip believed that this man, Simon, so here's a man that we believe, or at least the, the testament, testimony of the scripture says that he's a believer for all, all points of account here, but yet, as a believer, he comes back, or could be a believer, and he turns around and he says, you know what, I'll buy that. I'll, I'm gonna practice, I'm gonna coin a new term, simony here, and I'm gonna buy that office. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. It, this is difficult, isn't it? It's hard to sort of recollect, you know, it's, mentally, it's hard. How do you process this? Well, let's keep reading because I, I think the Lord will sift this out for us here. So he turns around and he says, you know, he offered him money, verse 19, saying, give me this power, this dunamis, also that any on whom I lay hands on may receive the, the Holy Spirit. Now, what did he want this power for? For himself, right? 
He's asking in vain, right? So Peter's about to see this. Now, I want to also point out, because Peter's going to rep, you know, basically reprimand him or rebuke him, if I could say it that way, publicly. But I wanted to, everybody here to recognize he's asking publicly. If he had gone in private or he had handled this in a different way, I don't think Peter would have necessarily embarrassed him, if, if you want to use that term, because some people get sensitive about this. Wow, was Peter really harsh? Why did he do that in front of everybody? And I thought Peter handled it beautifully. I, I could think how I would handle it. I'm not Peter. But, I mean, I thank God, you know, for, for his grace. Um, because I think he handles this beautifully. He's stern, but at the same point, he's drawing people back to repentance and to get right with God. And isn't that what we all need? To be drawn back to Jesus and be right with God? So, so please just bear that in mind as we go through this. I don't want to see, you know, I, it's, it's easy to be tempted to kind of go, ah, you know, did he handle this wrong? So he asked for this power. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Now, what does that sound like? Where do things perish? What does it sound like? It's, it's actually reference. It, it, it almost has a connotation of hell. You and your money will perish in hell. I mean, that, that's the, almost the connotation here, but we have to be careful not to isogeet. And it says, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Right? So this is public now. He's doing this in front of everybody. Everybody's watching this. You know, they're in Samaria. All these people came to believe, and they're watching. They're getting the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and Simon's over there, and they're watching this whole thing go down. Simon's a disciple. Philip, Philip's probably going, you know, oy vey, right? What, he doesn't know what. He said, oh, I can't take you anywhere. Why do you got to do this? You're not, you know. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. That's also interesting. You even need part nor portion in this matter. That also would make you think maybe he's not including him as one of them. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. He nails it. It's a heart issue. It always is. It's always a heart issue. Now, again, he lays it down hot, doesn't he? He didn't mince words, did he? I like Peter. I like the boldness of Peter. He turns around and he says it like it is. You're not ever guessing what Peter's really saying. You don't have to go, Peter, tell me what you really think. Is this what you really mean? We know what Peter really means, right? But I love what he does in verse 22 because I do think he handles this beautifully. He says, repent. He doesn't continue to berate him. He wants to draw him back in correction and love. He says, repent therefore of this your wickedness. And then the second thing he tells him to do is what? Pray. Prayer's our mighty weapon. Pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. So he tells them two things, repent and pray. You can never go wrong by repenting and praying. And that's what we see here. He says in verse 23, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The Holy Spirit had revealed this to him. He had gotten discernment of his heart. I don't know that Peter actually knew uh, whether this man was a true convert, a true believer or not. I, I don't think this is what we get here. I, I don't, no one can judge the heart, but God, we, I, I don't, I know maybe you do. I don't have the ability to look out at all of you and say, well, you're, you're a true Christian. You're, you're not a true Christian. I don't have the, the ability to see that. No one does, according to scripture. Only God knows. Because he tells us there's wolves among the sheep. He tells us that can happen. Uh, so, so I'm not surprised. I, I will tell you that I'm not surprised. I don't look out at every single person here that claims to be a Christian and go, absolutely. Because I know there's, there's tares among the wheat. And I know in the end times, we're also told what will happen. There will be a big or a great falling away. And I do believe we're in the last days. So I, I'm not surprised that, that he's sort of saying this, but I don't think he's in any way applying that he can see the heart or there's any type of apostleship that some man or woman or anybody, for that matter, can look in and see the heart of salvation. Nobody has that gift but God alone. But God alone. So he turns and he, he tells him, repent and pray, right? Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now this is the point where I go, wait a minute. All the other points I'm tracking so far. Repent and pray. Get right with God. Maybe he's a believer. 
But then this point is where I go, ah. What did he tell him to do? Repent and pray. What does Simon respond back with? You do it for me. Well, what's that tell us? Can you pray for your children to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? No. It's a personal confession of faith, isn't it? You can't will your child to be a believer in Christ. You can't work. Again, I was, you know, I grew up under a workspace mentality religion when I was growing up where, where it was all workspace. Do this, do that, earn your salvation. You can't work your way. The, the entire Bible teaches that. Because no man can keep the law. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. Right? So I look at this and he says, but you pray to God for me. Well, why can't he pray? Maybe it's because he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. It's never about religion. It's not religion. It's relationship. There's enough religion in the world. I'm done with religion. I love relationship. Love relationship with Jesus. That's what I think Peter was trying to tell him. Go, go to Jesus, repent, get right with him, have right relationship. But he's not getting it. He's saying, no, you're an authority, you got power, you do it. That's why we have only one intercessor, if you will, one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. That's why we don't go into a pew and tell somebody, you know, or not a pew, a box or whatever you want to call it, and tell somebody, hey, I did this, that, and the other. Because they probably should go, well, so what? Talk to the Lord. What are you coming to me for? Right? I mean, it's kind of futile. What are you doing in the box? I mean, the person's looking at you. They're looking at him going, I've done those things too. I talked to Jesus. Is there anyone that can absolve you of your sin other than Christ Jesus? And I'm not saying that. Again, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a religion where that was taught. And, and I gotta tell you, if, I, if you know the hearts and men of the, of the men that are in those boxes, their, their hearts aren't to, to try to, I, I do believe earnestly, their hearts aren't to lead people away that way. They're simply subscribing to a doctrine or dogma. But it doesn't mean that their hearts are wrong necessarily. They know that they're trying to draw people to Christ. I do believe that on the most part. But there's a lot of innocent young unbelievers. They don't understand that. And so when they see that, just like Simon, what do they do? They begin to, they begin to understand it as workspace. They begin to say, oh, I need someone in authority to, to somehow forgive me for the sin I've committed. No. That's why Jesus Christ had that shroud torn from the top and not the bottom. You remember that? That, that big shroud that was torn that would lead into the holies of holies, saying that we could now enter into the presence of God directly? And he did it from the top so that no man could try to sew it up. Because if it was from the bottom and it was ripped, the first priest would have been up there, ooh, sewing it back up. No, 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 we don't want any of that. No, God did it from the top down that it could never, never be sewn. That you and I could come into the very presence of God the Father any time we want by simply lifting our voices and talking to Christ and talking to God and talking to the Father telling him how we love him, we, we praise him, and he communes with us. He meets with us right where we are. We don't need to go to a temple or a special room. The church is not this building. The church is the body of Christ. You are the church. And when we are gathered together, we have church. And we're gonna we'll end with verse 25 here. So Simon answered and said, Lord, you know, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. We don't know what happens to Simon. I mean, there's tradition that tells us that um, he ended up uh, going off the deep end. And, you know, it's tradition. We really don't know. It's extra biblical. But it says when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, why is that important? Because the apostles didn't go 
But here was this deacon, Philip. He was like Stephen. He was one of the seven chosen that were supposed to wait on tables. Here he is. He's, he's chosen like that. And where the other apostles didn't follow, the leaders didn't follow the word of God that they were supposed to go out to all nations and baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, this, this young man, Philip, did. And as we read, and I encourage you to read ahead next week, verse 26, we didn't get to it here, verse 26 through 40, what is so beautiful is that God steps out and begins to use this man, Philip, in such a beautiful way. He doesn't have any elaborate seminary degree or any elaborate teaching. He actually didn't even meet directly with Jesus Christ. He didn't physically see him, in other words. He wasn't one of the 500. He wasn't the apostles. But you know what he did? He was obedient. He was available. He loved the Lord. You put those three things together, and God's will be done. And nothing's going to stop it. And that was his plan. And because of that, you and I here today, Philip is the one that evangelized the Gentile church. Many of us will come back and say, Paul, because he did go to you know, three different, you know, Galatia, the whole thing like that. And he will, and he did. But when you look at Philip, he was the first one to get outside of Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria. And he taught the word of God. And he did it simply. You know, we sit here today, or stand, and we think 2,000 years ago the church was so different then. But after our reading today, is it really that much different? If we do it God's way, if we follow the prescription or subscription in, 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 that we see here in the word of God, is it that different? Go, be available, be surrendered. Don't play church. Don't get comfortable. Be on fire for Christ because he's coming soon. Philip surrendered all and so should we, amen?